This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Good Egg Fund, one of my favorite charities. Find out more, go to goodeggfund.org. Do it. Hey, everybody. Oh. Hey, ev- whoa. Easy. Hey, everybody. Easy. Go slow. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello. Hi, J.D. <coughs> hi. Um, hi. How you feeling? Fine. I have been, um, if you don't know what Ed is referencing, I have been sick. I'm convalescing. I, and I, I think I'm fine now, actually. I, I have been, I've been quite sick. I, I got, I got, I thought I had a flu the day after Christmas and I just felt very sick for a couple of days. And then um, I wasn't getting better. And then Mrs. Flynn started feeling sick. And so Mrs. Flynn had the idea that we should take a COVID test or to COVID, each take a COVID test. So we did. And it turned out I had COVID and so did she. And she, Mrs. Flynn got well very quickly. Um, but I did not. And so I'm just, we're recording this podcast on Thursday, the 11th of January. And I'm really just, this is probably the first full day that I'm working since before, before Christmas, very honest. Uh, this is certainly the most words I've heard, heard you speak together since Christmas. <laughs> uh, you, you have been in a bad way and you say this is your first working day. I'm, I, I'm not seeding the premise you tried to sneak in there. You're, you're, doing the show because we haven't done a show since Before i don't know three weeks now yeah. so we needed to do a show of some kind but you are not back in the you, i i am not giving you back your keys yet <laughs> just slow down We're i have gonna, yeah baby steps i have been uh, i have been sick anyway that's you, you're not here listeners to hear about my health complaints oh no, but they are they're not they're not they're, I mean, no I, hang on no let's be serious for a moment the the volume of emails and DMs and messages and phone calls I have had from people telling me to tell you that they are praying for you, that they are saying mass for you. Yeah, that's people true. Are I've been very, very appreciative of that. That's been very, very kind. A number of priests have reached out to me to say that they're offering mass for me and for my family or people reach out to say that they're praying for me. That's very, very kind. I have indeed. I'm not trying to like beat around the bush. I I don't know why I am the sort of person who gets walloped by uh, by by COVID, but I I am, and and some people you know just get it and they're fine. But like I got it in twenty twenty, and I mean if you recall it, I was sick for weeks. I, I do recall because you you called me in a fever and said I have an idea. You told me the idea. I thought you were kidding, and then you went off work sick for a month. I was. You came back and I was quit off your job sick for a month, and I had to. Well, I had to resign amid that because I had to give sort of two weeks. So while I was really sick, I had to like resign from my job, which was a little bit weird. And like yeah, we had to figure out how to make a make a company and stuff. And <laughs> and so um, uh, and I had to decide whether or not you were serious. Whether yeah, this was that's, that's right. it was an adventure. It was an adventure. It was a Christmas adventure for both of us <laughs> back in 2020. And you. I don't know if you are, you have been as sick this time as you were that time. That time, my body memory was you were sleeping in the basement, which no, I don't I wasn't. remember. I was that... sleeping in our guest. Well, at the time, we had a guest room, which has since actually become my office. Uh-huh. And uh, and so I, I guess I haven't gone very far because that's where I am right now. And today, Mrs. Flynn, I, I'm not sure I'm supposed to talk about Mrs. Flynn on the podcast, but you know, if you work from home and if you have a home office as you do and I do, you get accustomed to going there and those kinds of things. But 
Mrs. Flynn referred to my office as my room. She said, is this or that in your room? And I, and I was like, no, our, our room is down the hall. But she meant my office. And it was a very sort of sobering idea because this probably is the room in which I spend the most time, time in our house. But did you feel infantilized by that? Like, you know, clean your room? Or, or was this a question of the fact that she didn't grant it the rank of office? Did you consider that a sort of diminution of your of your professional efforts? Like you no, don't rate I an office, be, you have a room. Having been married for eighteen years, that I still wanted to be like affirmed in the notion that, like, I, uh, you have like, right of access to your actual <laughs> bedroom. <laughs> my actual bedroom. Like, actually, we have a room, and it's very important to me that you affirm that. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just an <laughs> I love odd. it. So it's romantic insecurity. Yes, right? that's exactly right. Like, am I being chased off or something like that? Yeah. Or, or you have or, been pretty yeah, sick for no, a couple of weeks. Flynn was. I have been pretty sick for a couple of weeks. Mrs. Flynn was juggling the children and whatnot, and <clears throat> so that is what it is. Well, I've seen anyway, how there's a lot since. There's a lot to get through. We'll we'll talk about other things later. Let's let's good. talk about news things. Yes, that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, oh, good. That's there's a lot of actual work that we need to talk about here. And uh, what I'd like to talk about, um, a lot of things have happened. And what I'm hoping we can do is in the second half of this show, I'm hoping you can catch me up on all the things that I missed because I have been uh, not not that much paying attention to the news. And then there's like I have a big story that I've been working on that I had hoped to finish actually before Christmas. So any time that I've had for working, I've been trying to finish up this this big story that I've been working on. Um, yeah, I there's a, there, there have been some things that have been going on. Uh, you have been working sort of in in the background offline, very much offline. There was a there was an attempt you made earlier. I I guess it was like first thing last week where you sent me something in to to look over. And you said, okay, I I really. It was after your newsletter last week. You sent me a piece. That I have been writing my newsletter. Um, and shortly after you did your newsletter last week, you sent me, I think it was something that Edgar had filed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said, I've, I've been over it and it's, it's edited up to, and I think you gave me like the third subhead or something. And you said, it's just below there that needs work. And the lead was actual gibberish that I, had um, it was, it, it, they were not words arranged in any kind of syntactical Not because pattern. of Edgar. I should... We should clarify something no, important. No, not because of Edgar. Edgar. You had written the lead. Our customary practice is that Edgar customarily, who is our Latin American correspondent, f- customarily files his copy in Spanish, and then I translate it from Spanish to English. We found that to be a, a, a more fruitful sort of approach. So it was my translation that was gibberish, not, it, not Edgar's. Oh, no. Edgar had not filed gibberish. There yeah, should be no right. question yeah, about right. this. You had... You had written things in translation that did not correspond to any language. And at that point, I thought, okay, we we need you to to go on total rest. So some things have happened. Um, so where on the board would you like to go first? Well, I'd like you to catch me up on everything. But one thing that I noticed seems to have gotten an insufficient amount of discussion uh, among Catholics. And I think it's because it's just been swallowed up in a great deal of news that is happening. And perhaps that's understandable. But it seems to me that an announcement from the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis last week um, has gotten an insufficient amount of discussion. And here's what I mean. Uh, on um, January the 5th, so what was that? Um, uh, a week ago, January the 5th, the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis announced that Archbishop um, that a, that a Vos investigation into Archbishop John Neinstead had come to a conclusion, and that at the conclusion of that investigation— um, Archbishop Neinstead had been found guilty of no canonical crimes. Uh, no further evidence was unearthed to suggest that any subsequent 
canonical criminal investigation was warranted. But in the words of the archdiocese, there was evidence um, that there was imprudence, I think was the word. I'm Hang on, I want to... I have the text in front of me. Um, I have the text in front of me too, and I want to find the exact sentence. Um, yes, it was communicated to me, this is Archbishop Bernard Hebda of St. Paul, Minneapolis, speaking in this letter. It was communicated to me that several instances of quote-unquote imprudent actions were brought to light. While none of these instances, either standing alone or taken together, were determined to warrant any further investigation or penal sanction, it was determined by Pope Francis that the following administrative actions were justified. And the three are basically that Archbishop Ninestead may exercise no public ministry whatsoever in his former province of St. Paul and Minneapolis. So that's Minnesota and the Dakotas, basically. Nor is he allowed to live there. So he's exiled effectively from the from the province which he used to lead. Uh, and nor is he to exercise ministry in any way. This is interesting here. Uh, and we'll we'll split this language in a minute. You can tell me if you think it's significant. He may not exercise ministry in any way outside his diocese of residence without the express authorization of the attendant ordinary and only after the dicastery for bishops has been informed. Now, I don't know exactly where um, Archbishop Neinstein currently resides. I'm, I'm given to understand somewhere in Michigan, which yeah, is where I, he's from originally. I believe um, it is a parish. So a few years ago, there was a fracas. Uh, Archbishop Neinstein, by the way, you know, was... Um, uh, re- resigned um, from from ministry in I want to say 2014 in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. Is that correct? Because um, Hebda went in 2015. That's um, right. I'm gonna I'm just gonna look that up to confirm in in our own coverage. I'm just gonna read what happened. But um, okay, so according to our coverage, the Archbishop left office in 2015 following a series of allegations of failure to deal appropriately with instances of clerical sexual abuse. If I, if I recall correctly, it was effectively the input allegations of misconduct in, you know, into a drawer um, rather than deal with them. And that there were particular priests who were still in ministry who had been accused of assaulting minors and which he hadn't handled sufficiently. So um, subsequent to that, um, it emerged that he had been accused of touching a minor, a boy um, on the, uh, on the posterior and that there had been an investigation of that, but um, there was both this sort of administrative misconduct and um, these allegations of personal misconduct, which were, if I recall correctly, investigated to some extent. But after that, Ninestead kind of floated around. So this was in 2015. The Archdiocese underwent a lot of um, difficulty after that. Um, but Ninestead ended up in the Diocese of Kalamazoo, Michigan, helping out in a parish. I think he had a place. The Diocese of Kalamazoo, Michigan, borders the lake, and uh, of the same name, Lake Michigan. And if I recall correctly, he had a place on the lake and he was living there. And then he started helping out in a parish, a weekend parish of a, of a, of a friend. And then that emerged and people were very upset about it because he wasn't supposed to, it was thought not to supposed to be in ministry. And then it also emerged, and this kind of came, if I recall correctly, uh, to the fore around the same time as the McCarrick scandal. Um, it became an issue that Ninestead, was subsequently working for the Napa Institute, which is a um, an association organized by Catholics to provide formation to Catholics, um, to, to what are often coined Catholics of uh, Catholic leaders, kind of the legatus set, effectively. And it turned out that Nysad was working for them as a kind of, uh, and living on the property of, 
of one of the wineries owned by Tim Bush, who's the founder of the Knapp Institute. And um, shortly after the McCarrick scandal, as this sort of blew up, um, Ninestead moved out of there and, and I think went back to Michigan. So he's had a lot of sort of ups and ups and downs even since his resignation and um, he was actually one of the first Vos Estes to sort of begin because as soon as Vos Estes was promulgated, um, reports were made against him and a Vos Estes into this misconduct unfolded. But it took a long time. And I, to be perfectly honest, am not sure who the Vos Estes investigator was. I, I've not actually been able to clarify that. It was an Archbishop Hebda. Um, no, it was an independent investigation. So the Archdiocese was effectively the subject of much of the investigation because- But it was a Vosesti, so one has to ask which ordinary was. Um, uh, well, I think oversaw. the- this, I mean, the, the the preference under Vosestes, but again, this is a preference. It's a it's a presumption. It's not required. Is that the senior suffragan investigates the metropolitan? Oh, if, right. So it may well have been the senior suffragan diocese of the province. Right. Yeah. So uh, that that would at least be the default presumption of Vosestes. But anyway, there was this long, long investigation that was conducted independent of the archdiocese of Saint Paul, Minneapolis. It's had this report. Um, it's come back. Neinstein has effectively not been found guilty of any canonical crime, but there is this quote-unquote imprudence, which has merited sanctions that are stronger than um, bishops who are f sometimes found to, or at least strongly suspected of having found to commit canonical delicts. So I, I find that remarkable. I find it very strange. But the story actually got weirder on Friday afternoon because Neinstead you know, so this came out like the Friday the fifth in the morning, and then Ninestead himself put out a statement on Friday afternoon, which was emailed to us by his PR person, saying, "Archbishop Ninestead wants the Holy See to tell him what the imprudence was." In other words, the strangeness of this story is that Ninestead received some significant restrictions on his ministry, but without himself having been informed of what the findings of imprudence actually were. Yeah, well, this is this is a reality of canonical justice that uh, if you are the the reyes, the defendant, the subject of, of the process, you aren't actually by right um, granted access to or a copy of the, the findings against yeah. you. Yeah. A priest said to me, it seemed to them that Neinstead had <laughs> gone from being treated like a bishop to being treated like a priest in this penal matter in that he was, uh, he was uh, sanctioned without being convicted and without being informed of what the sanctions were actually for. And, you know, we have often, Ed – we have often criticized the Holy See uh, for, or raised at least the flag for the Holy See's praxis of doing Vosestes investigations and then allowing people to resign with no sanctions and with no, you know, clarity. So they find some problem and then they let the guy resign. Hepner, Stickup, um, there might be others who aren't coming to mind right now. Um, and and this is, and so maybe the Holy See heard the message, but this is sort of the opposite of that. It's about as far from that as you can get, isn't it, in certain ways? Uh, in in certain ways, I mean, in true Vosestes tradition, as Archbishop Neinstein himself has made clear, uh, there is no clarity on what the investigation actually found he had done. There is no itemization of the things he was found not to have done, and there was no explanation of the things he was alleged to have done and where, short of the bar of probative evidence, they fell so that he was not found guilty of any canonical delict. So it's not clear whether this is, you know, uh, Archbishop Nice was exonerated on some of the accusations he faced, or if um, there was what uh, most diocesan review boards would use the language of 
um, credible and substantiated evidence against him, but not enough to convict. Uh, I, I think the, you know, whoever made the comparison of he's gone from being treated like a bishop to being treated like a priest is a very apt one. Uh, that That is what's happening there. Uh, although I would I would say this, um, the sanctions he faces are are heavier uh, and considerably more restrictive than those faced by the bishops you named who were, quote unquote, resigned uh, following Vosesti's investigations into their conduct. So that is very interesting. But it's also worth bearing in mind, of course, they couldn't resign Ninestead because he was already resigned. You, you yeah, can't kill a man right. twice. That's right. So the the options box um, for sort of the gentleman's way out for, for Ninestead, having decided he had behaved, quote unquote, imprudently, whatever that means, uh, was already empty. So they had to do something. Uh, but this is a very, I mean, so one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and tell me if you think um, this is a question of uh, Holy See copy editing falling short of legal precision or there is something significant here to be explored. So I'm interested primarily, okay, so he's not allowed to reside in, the, in his former province of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Fine, that's what it is. Archbishop of State may not exercise any public ministries in the province, and he may not exercise ministry in any way outside of his diocese Ooh, of residence. There's no, there's no public qualification for him exercising ministry outside of his diocese of residence. So... What this seems to suggest to me is he could engage in he could offer private masses, let's say, in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. No, no, he can't because of course the the particular is governed by the universal here. He he can't exercise public ministries in the province, oh. but he can't exercise ministry in any way outside of his diocese of residence. But I think it what it means is even if he is given permission by his attendant ordinary and the dicaster of bishops does not object, even in that circumstance, he couldn't do so publicly in his former. I think province. that's right. But the restriction on private ministry outside of yeah, is extraordinary, his diocese of residence is extraordinary. Well, I restricted. think perhaps there's a recognition of the kind of scandal that that might cause, but it's hard for us to know because we don't know what it is that he is found to have done wrong. I mean, that's really interesting is what you would perceive from that yeah. is, okay, so just to lay it out, that means that the Bishop of Kalamazoo, for example, or the Bishop of Gaylord, Michigan, or the Bishop of of uh, Lansing, Michigan, or whatever, could permit him to, um, to, to be on the confirmation circuit. If he really wanted to, Having informed the dicastery for bishops, the bishop of one of those places could permit him to, to to fill in and do supply work for confirmations or weekend mass fill in or whatever. Um, but given the presumably nature of the scandal and the sentiment, I suppose the sentiment of the people in the province or the profundity of the wound that he has seemingly caused in the province, the archbishop of uh, St. Paul in Minneapolis, for example, or the Bishop of um, Duluth or something like that, could not permit him to fill in over the weekend or something like that. That there would be, it seems the Holy See's judgment is that there would be, that would be more scandalous in the place where, I suppose, his activities are more well-known or where there is a pattern of imprudent activity, which is not yet especially well-known. I mean, that's the thing is, uh, we can make conjecture about what he's sort of being sanctioned for, what imprudent actions he's being sanctioned for. Well, but it's not a sanction. Yeah, I know. He's being restricted for based upon his um, what's known about him publicly. But we don't know if perhaps this 
additional restriction comes from a pattern, a, habit, a habitual pattern of imprudent action in the province that perhaps the Holy See is, is concerned might well come to light. I mean, it's just absent the information, it's really hard to know why the Holy See is making the particular decisions that it's making. So I, I have a couple of questions here. First of all, this seems to me to be, I, I don't want to call it a mockery because that that would be a strong editorialization, but this is not justice. This is an abuse of the judicial process, in my humble opinion. And I understand that that, in so calling it, I mean, this, according to the letter from Archbishop Hebda, this is the, these, um, Are we just chronic administ- naysayers? They do, I don't want they to be do a chronic thing, naysayer. They do one thing, we say it's bad. They do the opposite, we say it's bad. Are we just chronic naysayers here? Well, I only ever ask that people do one thing in this field, which is follow the law. That's the only thing I ever ask. I have, like, honestly, it's one job, people. There's a nice big red book with canon laws, a big, beautiful code. Just much of it, the penal code promulgated by Pope Francis. Like, can we can we not use that, please? That's all I'm asking because these quote unquote administrative so you think actions, these administrative restrictions are illegal. No, I don't think they're illegal. It's they come from the Pope, and the Pope has supreme, full, immediate. Authority. I don't think they're illegal, but they're an abuse of the process. Tell me, or rather, why. a complete circumventing of the process. Okay, prohibition on residence, effective suspensio ad divinus. I mean, that's what this is. Mm-hmm. I mean these are, these are penal sanctions. Yes, and they are being they are being applied after an exhaustive, presumably canonical investigation returned, according to what we're being told no evidence, or at least not sufficient evidence to convict, of a canonical delict. So you're imposing criminal sanctions following a criminal investigation that return no criminal verdict. And you're saying, oh, well, we're just going to call them administrative actions. So precepts, I guess, would be the, the what we'd be calling these. In, these in are the strange lexicon of precepts, I suppose. They're very strong precepts. And, and again, if here's the thing that gets my goat about this. First of all, if he's behaved that imprudently, that these precepts are warranted, it seems to me that it is a failure of prosecutorial imagination to come up with a delict you could have proven. Like either that or Archbishop Neinstead is a canonical criminal mastermind, which criticisms of him being what they are, uh, I've not heard that said of him. Is that the man is such a creative and administrative genius Nor that he's I. been able to tiptoe around the province, committing all sorts of horrendous actions and escape canonical prosecution because he's just so crafty and clever about it. That that is not the yeah. characterization of him that I I have heard. Yeah. Um, if if on the other hand he is behaving in such a way or has behaved in such a way, particularly in his former province, that these sorts of prohibitions are not just reasonable but necessary. Then it would seem to me that there is a question of public justice that needs to be answered there, which would argue in favor of a little more transparency or any whatsoever on the part of the Holy See. And also would argue that there's even a public safety component. Like if you have a notorious criminal who has enjoyed high office for this long and merits this kind of punishment, because that's what this is, is punishment, then I, I think the people affected, including his former archdiocese and his former metropolitan province, have a right to know. Well, and I, I have thought that too. I, you know, I was going to ask you on the one hand, do we have a right to know? And on the other hand- I don't think I have a right to know, but if I was a parishioner in St. Paul, Minneapolis, I would feel like I had a right to know. Well, you know, I mean, so 
what what I wondered is, um, you know, do we have a right to know? And and on the other hand, what is the the advantage of knowing? And I think that victims advocates would say the advantage of knowing what these imprudent actions are is to allow um, other people who may have been harmed by similar imprudence to come forward to affirm their experience, um, uh, you know, so such that they would feel confident coming forward or to alert them to the fact that what they experienced might have been, in the judgment of the church, imprudent, and also to alert other clerics, I would think, regarding what kind of conduct is non-criminal but sufficiently imprudent to merit restrictions on ministry. Like, if I were a cleric anywhere, I suppose, I'd want to know, well, what did Ninestead do to get this punishment so that I can be sure not to do it, or so I can at least know if I do it, I'll get this kind of punishment. You, you know what I mean? Those are the people who I right. think, for whom well, I think there is some public interest. Because I do think there has to be a question about what, what is there some sort of public interest in knowing? And those are the people for whom I think there is some public interest in knowing. And, I, I, and also, sorry, go ahead. No, I say granted and agreed. But the other thing is, again, and, and the only because we know nothing about this supposedly imprudent behavior of Archbishop Knights is beyond what we can infer from the strength of the precepts placed on him as a result. But inferring from that what we can in terms of the the level of imprudence he must have demonstrated that is nevertheless not criminal, that would yeah. seem to me to be the sort of behavior that you want to publicize because people who work in chanceries or other levels of the church hierarchy should be on the lookout for this sort of behavior and say, yeah, okay, this is not criminal, right. but it's very bad. So yeah. it's not enough if you see your boss doing something that you know looks really bad to you, and he says, "Well, it's not criminal." Like well, apparently, that's what happened with Ninestead. Yeah. So it would be nice to have available in the public consciousness to say, "Okay, that might not be criminal, but it can get you exiled from your diocese," which means that it effectively is criminal. I mean, to, to exactly. Point, but this is my point: it may not is, be this criminal, is, but it's criminal. Is, is this just you know it, it it again further erodes the integrity of the of, of the an or, ordinarily functioning legal system? I think yeah. it is good that okay things that I think are good. I think it is good that the Holy See determined that certain kinds of actions merit a sanction rather than you know merely being allowed to sort of fade off into the sunset. Um, and I think it is good that we were sort of notified of those sanctions rather than them being prohibited, given privately. With that said, I think it is weird that they were not sanctions um, and that they were halfway announced, you know, that they were not sanctions. They were rather precepts, although I think there is a place for precepts in the life of the church. And, you know, I was a, just a, talking with the church. A strong priest. utility of precepts. Yeah, yeah. Utility for such things. But one would think that even those precepts could be announced as precepts. He has been given a penal precept, which means if he does X, he will face, you know, the following penalty, yeah. which is what a precept is. And you know what the problem be, with calling it a precept is? Is if you impose a precept, you have to give a reason for why it is being right. imposed. That's what I'm saying is, yeah. So one would wish that there were, they, they were precepts so that they followed the sort of ordinary mechanism of our law instead of an extra legal process. And two, I think there is a public interest and, you know, I, I, I really push myself on this because I don't want to just assume there's a public interest in everything or ignore the legitimate use right of privacy in the church and these kinds of things. But I do think there's a public interest in knowing what this public figure who has been the focus of considerable scandal is being precepted for. And also precepts, the interesting thing about precepts is they're usually meant to prevent the commission of a delict. So a priest might be precepted from having contact with minors or a priest might face a penal precept 
from going to certain places or something like that. If he's been in the near occasion of a delict before. Or soliciting funds for a cause. Soliciting funds for a cause. He might receive a precept prohibiting him from soliciting funds for a cause. All well and good. And if he violates that, you know, um, then he's appropriately sanctioned. Um, But usually the, the thing which is preceptively prohibited is the thing which is the near occasion of delict or something which would cause scandal. Here we have the thing which would cause scandal, but we really are not aware of what, whether there are precepts regarding the thing which is the near occasion of a delict or is the exercise of ministry itself in some way the near occasion of a delict. We just don't – there's just more that we don't know than we do, and that might be the consistent element of this with regard to this. Right. And and clearly the intention here is not to reform Archbishop Neinstead because if you want to reform him, you have to tell him what he's done. Right. Right, which he he claims he has not been. Now, I do want to say the part that I think is good is that there is some preceptive prohibition instead of Archbishop Neinstead is, is expected to fall off the face of the earth. And some clerics who have been found to have done very bad things are just – some prelates, bishops who have been found to have done some very bad things are just – the Holy See just responds by saying you're expected to fall off the face of the earth. Go down to Arkansas and retire and buy a condo with your sister or, or buy a house California in California and move in into the vineyard. Yeah, which I guess they already did with him once. So they they tried the fly off into the sunset thing with him once, and it didn't work. So they're trying something else. Good. I think that part deserves credit. How they did it, I think, points to the fact that the Holy See is still sort of operating on the on the peripheries of the law in certain ways, instead of in, in ways that are legally recognizable to practitioners of the law, at least to these. Okay, here's my baseline read on this, sir. Did we have a Vosessi's investigation? Yes. Did it proceed according to the norm of law? We don't know. Did it conclude according to the norm of law? We don't. Again, I, I'm not willing just, to definitely just say straight no. answer. Don't. I'm, don't. You don't need to analyze. Just straight answer. We did don't it know. Conclude. Okay. Um, did it discover any criminal wrongdoing? No. Okay. Did it discover anything that required? Coercive restrictions placed on a cleric. Yes. Do we know what they were? No. Okay. So we don't know how the process proceeded. We don't know what the resolution was. We don't know what it found. And we don't know why it resolved the way it did. Correct. Now, and one of my G Funk brother, brother in love. So that's, I would say, on its own terms, that's a failure. That's a failure of justice. Um, and and I, I ask you, and I understand that you're coming back from, you know, slowly you're coming back. You're not fully back yet from an extended illness. And, you know, you you might, you're not in mid-season form and I don't expect you to be here. But can you think of a single instance in the last four years, nearly five now, of the life of Vosestes Luxmundi, where a an investigation has been publicly announced to have been undertaken? Its results have been, even in summary form, um, disclosed at the end, and a sanction linked to an instance of specific wrongdoing has been imposed. No. So we're batting zero. We seem to be batting zero, but this is a foul tip. I want to say this is a pretty good foul tip into the stands. I would even say this one was going deep, going deep and landed in foul territory, but I don't want to say this is nothing because I think it's by the standard of batten zero, this is better. Million dollar question. Sir. 
if this happens in any other archdiocese with any other archbishop, no, this then, is hey, this is you're taking my analysis now that I told you I was going to. I'm 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 queuing you up. You're I, I, me. I now want you to undermine your entire point that you've just made because I know what you really think about this, and I'm not going to let you. I'm saying what I really think of it. Okay, so you're saying you think this is a pretty solid foul tip, and I'm saying is there any contact whatsoever? Does any of what you just say hold water if this statement from Archbishop Hebda doesn't come out? And does any no, archbishop in I, the country put this statement out? I I suspect that an Archbishop Hebda can correct me if I'm wrong, if he's a listener to this show or if people alert him to this. I suspect that what the Holy See would have liked to have said was far less than what was said here. Because Archbishop Hebda, I think, uh, is not just far less. Be, zero. I don't know about zero, but I think probably far less. Archbishop Hebda, I think, is known to be a a transparency guy. Like it seems to me that Archbishop Hebda and a lawyer. He conducted the Vosestes investigation in the Diocese of Crookston, which led to the removal. And what of we Bishop know, Hebda. what we have confirmed already about that is that Archbishop Hebda had to um, exert some influence in order to see the level of transparency with which that one was concluded. And I suspect that Archbishop Hebda had to exert some influence here to assure the level of transparency with which this one was concluded, even if it probably wasn't the level of transparency that he himself would have preferred. Okay. And remind me, did did Archbishop Hebda conduct this Vosastes investigation? We don't know. I, no. No, he didn't. We no, do know it was independent. We do know it was You're right, thank you. So this isn't his, he had what, what little credit you are giving the results of this investigation is actually not proper to anyone who participated in the process. Correct, Imundo. Batting zero. <laughs> I I I don't disagree with you. I just I really um we are naysayers, man. No, we're not naysayers. I again one thing. I, I am a man standing on a cliff shouting into the sky. Just give me one recognizable, credible legal process with a credible conclusion. Yeah. That's all I'm asking for. Just give me one. One to hang my hat on. I will give you one after this word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at The Good Egg Fund. Ed, are you familiar with The Good Egg Fund? I am very familiar with The Good Egg Fund. I am, and I don't mind saying this, I am a donor occasional to The Good Egg Fund. I have given money to them in the past. This is my kind of charity. Here's what it is. It's a little charity that gives small grants of less than $500 to people or groups who want to do good for others, but don't have the funds of their own. So they pool resources to help people pay electric bills or buy car seats or get ahead on bills or get caught up on bills or put groceries in their fridge or pay off a medical bill. They do the small things that can make a huge difference to people who are um, find themselves a little bit behind, as many, many of us do. Pick your biblical analogy, narrative, whatever. This is being your brother's keeper. This is being a good Samaritan. This is loving your neighbor as yourself. This is everything I love about human society. And as we all know, I don't love a great deal about it, but this is it. The Good Egg Fund is just good people doing good work, seeing the neighbor across the street who's at the absolute end of their rope and saying, what is the thing I can do to lighten the load for them? And realizing that a few hundred bucks can really make a difference. Yeah. There are lots of times where a few hundred bucks can be the difference between a sleepless nights and a stressed out family and right. feeling a little bit more like things are a and, little bit more under control. What I love about how they operate, at least as I've understood it, is that it's not just you, they give grants to the people who need the thing. They get, they will give grants to people who say, I need to do this thing for this person. Yeah. 
And that's great because very often, like the, the thing, the thing that can change your life that is the difference between absolutely not being able to cope anymore and being able to, you know, make it to the next day is not something that you're actually able to or even aware of how you would ask for help on. And so the idea that it really can be a good neighbor motivated thing is the best. Like you can see your neighbors like that person, they just, they, they can't afford diapers right now. Yeah. They need, you know, they need three boxes of diapers for God's sake. So how can we help them with that? Or, you know, they've, they need a bigger car, whatever it is. Um, and it can be totally spontaneous and reactive that way. And I, I just love it. I just love it. So here's what the good egg fund needs. Two things. Um, first of all, they need donors and they need especially recurring donors like sign up to give these people $5 a month or $7 a month or $9 a month or $10 a month. Um, because those little amounts help them to plan where they can give grants and what difference they can make. So the first thing they need is go to goodeggfund.org and sign up to give them a little bit of money every month. That's one. Two, they need to know who needs help. So you can go to goodeggfund.org and um, not be afraid to ask the fund for grants when you know someone who needs help. You know, they help them help, so to speak, by being a sort of bridge between people who want to do good and someone who needs it. When I was a kid, one of the, like the most meaningful and important things, like one of the most meaningful and important things in my life, and we didn't have a lot of money. We had slightly less than um, not much. And, but um, just about every time I'd go to the grocery store with my dad, like, and a lot of times, like I'd run over to the grocery store with my dad at night because we needed, you know, milk for cereal or, or bread for sandwiches for the next day or something like that. But a lot of times I'd run to the grocery store with my dad and he'd buy sort of an extra bag of staples and then drop them off on the porch of a single mom that he knew or a struggling family that he knew with no note or anything. Just um, we have a little extra scratch and these are some people who are, are having a harder time making ends meet than us. It, it left such an impression on me that my dad was so committed to that, you know, consistently and anonymously. And, um, and there are lots of people like that. And lots of us, I think, aspire to be that way. And the Good Egg Fund, being a regular donor to the Good Egg Fund is a way to just um, – do a small, but I think probably redemptive act of charity um, with regularity and um, and in a way that I think is is efficacious and that pleases our Lord. Goodeggfund.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar Co-Founder, all-around good guy at Condon. And uh, what we're talking about right now is, um, well, we've been talking about Archbishop John Clayton Neinstead, and and that was one thing that happened in the news. But I, maybe you're like me, maybe you have been uh, checked out of the news for a little while, or maybe you just have have uh, uh, feel like there's so much going on in Catholic news right now that you can't sort of keep up with with them. So, Ed, I would like you in the next fifteen minutes to bring me up to speed on three things in Catholic media that are in Catholic news that are important. And I'm going to time you, I'm going to set a timer for five minutes and you're going to bring me up to speed and we'll talk about it for five minutes. But then when the timer goes off, we are moving on. Does that sound fair to you? Uh, Sure. Sounds fine to me. First one, go. Um, Okay. Well, I suppose the first thing we have to talk about is the ongoing business around the DDF's pre-Christmas declaration on the possibility of granting blessings to individuals in either same-sex couplings or other irregular domestic circumstances. Uh, The backlash of that really hasn't stopped. It has just 
run and run and run and run. And I, I guess, you know, we, we've seen the sort of sharp divisions that you would expect to see. It's, it's consolidated in places. And then so then today, I suppose if you want to be right up, today being Thursday, uh, yesterday, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not, J.D., um, we had CCAM, which is the African Conference of Bishops Conferences, came out with its sort of final, quote unquote, synthesis of the response of the African Bishops Conferences um, to fiducia supplicans, uh, in which they basically said, we aren't doing this here, that it is not appropriate for the African context, which is, as they put it, deeply rooted in the values of natural law, and also that they um, they considered it pastorally inappropriate and in some cases politically dangerous to attempt to do such a thing. Um, what is interesting also about that this this CCAM statement is that it it was made with the prior authorization. So yeah, it was said, approved by the by Cardinal Fernandez, right, and all the other and Pope Francis, um, both of them, in fact, apparently approved it, and the, it, it it accepts and affirms what Cardinal Fernandez has said more or less since Fiducius Supplicans was was issued and then blew up. Uh, he said there's, they said, we recognize this declaration does not change church teaching. We recognize that the intention here is not to present a new teaching or an evolved teaching on human sexuality by the church. Uh, we understand that this is instead, con- you know, the novelty of this document concerns blessings uh, made in a non-liturgical, non-ritualistic uh, format that is spontaneous and is everything else. Um, but nevertheless, they say, <laughs> this is what this is quoting from the letter again, that Pope Francis and Cardinal Fernandez apparently approved prior. The language of fiducia supplicans remains too subtle for simple people to understand. And it remains very difficult to be convincing that people of the same sex who live in a stable union do not claim the legitimacy of their own status, which I, I think is a criticism that can be fairly made. Uh, it should be noted that this, if this is sort of the African bishops who have been most strident and most united in their in their pushback against fiducia supplicans, uh, this follows Cardinal Fernandez having issued while you were out sick a five page press release offering detailed guidance and clarification on fiducia supplicans, which of course he had said in the text itself he wasn't going to do and wouldn't be forthcoming, and so he he did all sorts of what I've heard a lot of people refer to as sort of anti-James Martin um, provisions. Like these things should only be a few seconds long. They should never take place in a prominent sacred space. The there, you know, you should, um, you should consider making the sign of the cross. If you're blessing a, a, a couple to make it clear that you're blessing them as individuals, not their union, you should make the sign of the cross over both of them individual at the end, not once over the two of them as though you were sanctifying their, or, you know, making a prayer on behalf of their union. Uh, he also suggested including a prayer that they might conform their, everything in their life that is lacking to the full um, import of the gospel. And basically in places in their life and in aspects of their relationship that are sinful, that they might convert out of the sin, um, all sorts of things. So the the ball has not stopped rolling on fiducia supplicans since it was issued. I suspect it will roll further. My personal prediction, and this will be in my newsletter tomorrow or today, depending on who you are and where you're hearing this, uh, is that you will get the the sort of photo negative of the CCAM statement from a European or other bishops conference who will say basically the exact opposite that 
you know, we can do all of these things and it's great. And that too will have the full imprimatur of the Holy See. Okay. So does that- How do I do on timing there? You have 20, we have 24 seconds for discussion, but I might extend. Yes. Good job. Does that add, the Holy See issued this directive, which said, we're going to have these kinds of blessings. Then they started backing down from them. Well, they then, said, we're going to have these kinds of blessings and bishops, it's none of your business bishop, to regulate them. This is a matter the, of- What it was, was actually the, um, it was the Samorum Pontificum of blessings, right? Because when Samorum Pontificum came out, it said, hey, priests, you're going to be able to do this thing. I'm going to reset it for five minutes of discussion now. Hey, priests, I, I love it that you've said this was the Samorum Pontificum of blessings. Do you know why I love that? Why? Because before your great illness, the last show we recorded, I said, this is the Samorum oh, Pontificum really? of blessings. And you said, people are going to get so mad at you for saying that. You shouldn't say that. That's totally... <laughs> And here we are three weeks in one strong bout of COVID later, and that's just what we call it. Well, what and I, I mean it. by that, and what you meant by that, apparently, uh, I really thought I thought of that, is uh, is that it said, um, hey, priests, um, you're, you can do this thing now, and uh, your bishop can't, uh, can't uh, prohibit you from doing th th this thing. And, and in Samorum Pontificum, that thing was celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass, and in Fiducius Supplicans, it, that thing was um, give non spontaneous non-liturgical blessings. Um, to same-sex couples. Um, but the notion was the same. This is sort of directly to priests and the bishop can't regulate this. Well, bishops started regulating it pretty much right away. American Immediately. bishops, Yeah, American bishops started issuing instructions. Um, uh, certain European bishops started saying, well, forget that. We're going to give you liturgical text, even though the thing says no liturgical text. African bishops said, whoa, 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 whoa. Bishops from other parts of the world said, whoa, 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 as well, including Polish bishops and others. Because the concern was that this, this, these spontaneous non-liturgical blessings of same-sex couples could seem to validate the relationship, or, or otherwise seem to be a sanctioning of the union. So, um, uh, so you had this, and it was December eighteenth, and now, like what, three weeks later, you effectively have its complete dismantling. The, the, um, this thing from the uh, African bishops, you might say, is the traditionis custodes. Of um uh, of fiducia supplicants in that um they say no way no how he ain't going to do that here and the holy see has signed off on it is it, it is an absolute and complete reversal of the universality of their plan and that in itself is remarkable but one of the parts of it that's remarkable is the situation in which it leaves us where um you have different regions of the world church the church in different regions of the world ecclesiastical leaders in different regions of the world saying different things about what will happen with regard to same-sex blessings. And Ed, what I find interesting about that is it is exactly the situation that the Anglican communion found itself in for many years regarding same-sex blessings, where different places were doing entirely different things, and the central authority, and as much as there was one, was saying, that's cool, let's just hold the communion together. But that is a relatively confederated approach for our universal church, which is both, which is both a communion of particular churches and a one singular and universal reality, that's a rather confederated approach compared to our approach to just about every other thing. Yes, um, what we're what we're looking at is a reimagining of the bonds of if communion in the Catholic Church is made up of the bonds of sacraments, of doctrine, and of hierarchy of governance. Um, we are looking at a reimagining or. Um, a sort of stress testing of a new version of the bonds of governance and, and doctrine, which basically says, all right, that used to mean we all taught and believed the same thing. Now we're going to just basically have, this is where I think we're going. 
um, is that we're basically going to say, well, maybe we don't teach and practice the same thing, but the different teachings and practices in different parts of the world all get rubber stamped by Rome. And so that's the point of communion. In in Germany, you can bless same-sex unions in church buildings um, and basically bulletin them as, as weddings. Uh, in Belgium, you can you can get a blessing that comes from a set liturgical text. Both of the, all of these things are completely ruled out by fiducia supplicans, by the way. But you know, apparently that doesn't matter. In Africa, if you're a priest, you may not give any blessing like this. And all of these things are totally contradictory to each other, and offer in in either word or deed or example a completely contrary witness to what is supposed to be the common teaching of the church, but it's all okay because Cardinal Fernandez and Pope Francis are going to sign off on it beforehand. And therefore you're all in communion with each other because you've been given various different dispensations endure, to go your own road. Can that last? No, no, it absolutely can't last. It won't last. Um, this is, this is, I, I likened it in my newsletter this morning. I likened this developing situation to basically a trial separation. In yeah. in the community and, of the church, and so again, I find like, everyone's still married, but we're going to move into different rooms. Here's what I find myself wondering, and it's even more pronounced now. One of the largest constitutive elements of the Presbyterate of Germany consists of priests from um, Nigeria, Cameroon, and other uh, sub-Saharan countries. The bishops of those places have now told their priests that they are not to do those fiducia supplicant blessings. Will they expect that of their priests who are on assignment in other places? Will that cause tension? When the priest who is a parish priest in Bonn or Dusseldorf, um, but incarnated in the diocese of in the archdiocese of Lagos, is doing a thing in Bonn and Dusseldorf, is expected to do a thing in Bonn and Dusseldorf, which he's which he's prohibited from doing back home in Lagos, is that going to cause all kinds of tension for the huge sort of clerical labor supply reality of the fact that expatriate African priests are the backbone of the presbytery in many parts of the world, or increasingly so? No. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't anticipate unless I've missed some particular wordings in places. I don't anticipate that individual African bishops conferences or individual African um, bishops are writing guidance for fiducia supplicans that propose to prescribe ministerial action by their priests outside of the diocese on stable assignment elsewhere. Right now, uh, but I right think now. it's possible that if there are photographs of of those priests, in, well, okay, in so Beijing, hang on. That that was be my next point is nor do I think there's any credible or reliable mechanism for them checking up on it. Uh, you know, you, you if you're a bishop in Nigeria and you have a priest who's working in Shisel, uh, to name a parish that I went to once and had a negative experience. Not there was no Nigerian priest there at the time. And in fact, I found myself praying that there had been. Um, I think my experience would have been rather better. Um, but anyway, you're a priest in a small German town. Um, I don't think there's any way for your bishop in Nigeria to know or have any idea what you're what you're doing in, in your stable assignment in a German diocese. Um, but to your point about you know pictures coming up, so I, I think more likely the question to ask is: Can the bishops of Germany, who are going to push the envelope hard or really go way beyond it um, with fiducia supplicans, what if? Uh, a, a significant proportion of their priests who are, as you say, sort of expat um, African priests, uh, yeah, just say no. Just say, oh, I'm not doing that. Make me. I, I think that's a far more um, likely scenario than 
um, it being sort of African bishops providing guidance. Yeah, but then you have this other challenge it. where the guy who is assigned to a par- the the Nigerian guy. I mean, this is a reality. The Nigerian guy who is assigned to a parish in Germany or California or New York, or for that matter, uh, is often sending a decent portion of his salary home to the diocese and helping to support the diocese. Mm-hmm. Is is it possible that that guy will feel somewhat economically coerced or feel the economic pinch of not doing it? Um, you know, and 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 how how might the disparity between the disparity of wealth and the fact that these priests are often sort of bridges between the wealth of one place and the poverty of another. How might that factor into things? I, I don't know the answer, but I think that's something. I don't know the answer, but my suspicion would be if a priest called home to, again, for example, Nigeria and said to his bishop, what should I do here? I, I think the bishop would have a pretty clear answer. He'd say, are you out of your mind? Yeah, I don't I can't know. do that. I, I don't know. I mean, I... I'd like to think so. I find it very difficult to believe that, that bishops the bishop who are feeding into this synthesis from CCAM would turn around and say to their guys, oh, yeah. but we need the money. No, I don't think they would say we need the money, but I think he'd decide. He'd say, look there where the bishop is saying to do it is at the hill you want to die. I, I just don't know. I, I, I perceive that this could be an issue, but I really don't know how how it will play out as an issue. Let, let me offer a, a potential evolution to this circumstance. and Please Tell do. me if you think this sounds possible. So let's say there are a number of bishops in Germany, for example, who insist that such blessings have to be made available. Mm-hmm. Um, they furthermore insist, contra what Fiducius Sipicons actually says, uh, that such blessings be made available by prior appointment in church buildings, in parishes, mm-hmm. for example. There is a sizable minority of clergy in the diocese or in dioceses across Germany who say, we will not do that because first of all, the actual text from Rome says we can't. Mm -hmm. And second of all, we have our own objections to it. And it is not, you know, respecting our pastoral genius, Mm -hmm. um, which is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in in these situations. Uh, We do not believe that is appropriate. And so we will not be doing it. And there is a, a sizable Let's call it a minority. Let's assume it'll be a minority, but a sizable minority of German lay Catholics who also don't much like the plans of their bishops. So a compromise is worked out whereby the bishops say, all right, such blessings will be available in these parishes. And and there will be these parishes for those who feel strongly that, that this is not appropriate. And, and they can go there. And then little by little, as the demographics evolve and shift, it evolves over a sort of national plan. Someone like, for example, the Central Committee of German Catholics together with the German Bishops Conference get together and they come up with a plan and they say, all right, we have this persistent minority of bishops and priests in this country who just won't get on board. So we're going to make a sort of extraterritorial flying diocese or two or three that will be sort of a home for these trads. And, you know, it'll be basically a personal ordinariate. Or two, you know that's how it will function. Yeah, um, and and then they can they can be off in their little corner, and then the rest of the church in Germany can you know can continue by common consent, and continue to you know emerge as the great glorious butterfly which it feels it's destined to become. Um, does that sound like something they might be into? That sounds a bit far fetched to me. 
Okay, because that's exactly what happened with the Church of England. Oh, that's, yeah, true. That's true. That's, that is literally what they did. But they're a little bit more. You had, quote unquote, flying bishops who yeah. would go from diocese to diocese to do ordinations yeah. Yeah. and administer sacraments to people who did not get on board with the women's ordination well, thing. If we got there, it would be a pretty far road from where we are right now. I mean, we're not there, but. Mm. Okay, our time is Ten up. exits on the Jersey Turnpike. That's how far on that road that's we are. That's a long, that's more than 10 exits on the parkway for what it's worth. Okay, and here's what I'd like to do with the next five minutes. I'd like to talk about something that I have been covering while um, while I've been convalescing, not actually covering as a reporter, but covering as an editor. Last week was a major um, event, I suppose, in the life of the Church in the United States. A conference called uh, called Seek, put on by Focus Campus Ministry Apostolates Focus, at which um, uh, for some events, as many as nineteen or twenty thousand people were there in in total. Um, uh, at in St. Louis, there were talks and adoration and mass and liturgies, and it's a gathering mostly of young people, but also of of, of older people and people from the from the area. And uh, we had a young student journalist, uh, a student at Benedictine College, and a, 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 a freelancer of the Pillar now, serving as our correspondent, our on the ground correspondent at Seek. And uh, he did a very good job covering it. Did you get a chance to read uh, much of his coverage? I I have been dipping in and out. I didn't. I, I not. I haven't been editing it because you and Michelle were editing it. Uh, I haven't been able to give it my full and divided because my my own um, portfolio has expanded somewhat while you've been away. So yeah, I that's think. true. But one I, of the things that I, I had I to found, juggle a few things. One of the things that I found interesting that I wanted to mention is um, his coverage of the the students who came to see college students who came to seek from Germany. Who uh, who were there? There were there are hundred something students from Europe, and a decent chunk of them were from Germany, where there are campus ministry missionaries from Focus, American campus ministry missionaries from Focus at some German universities, and so there were German students there. and And Jack Fig, our correspondent at Seek, did a, had really interesting conversations with them about the renewal of the church in Germany, and they they really talked about their desire to to themselves like proclaim the gospel more concretely to their peers and to their counterparts. And they, they talked about the fact that, you know, th- that can be discouraging and difficult because of the way in which the church in Germany has become in many ways NGO. And there was even a bishop who spoke with Jack and who also gave a talk in which he talked about the profound challenge that comes from having a church, which is a large social service organization staffed mostly by people who don't practice the faith. And he broke down. I thought this was very interesting. He said, we know that X number of people in the, in Germany go to mass on Sunday. We know that Ninety percent of them, or something like that, are over seventy. We have X number of lay employees uh, in in the church in Germany. The lion's share of them are under seventy, and we can like deduce from this just by lining up those numbers that most of the church, most of the church's employees in Germany are not Sunday mass goers, which I found to be sort of very interesting way of assessing things. Um, and you know, we can see in which that the way in which that becomes kind of a challenge to our proclamation of the gospel, and even doing things ordinary things like theology on tat. But it was an interesting, you know, these young people sort of left with a lot of sort of enthusiasm about going home to proclaim the gospel in a church which to them feels to, to be very institutional and bureaucratic, but not sort of evidencing a living faith um, in Jesus Christ among many of its, its members, even many of its employees. And I wondered about that. What would be your, what would you do, Ed? I mean, like, what if you were calling the plays there, and the challenge was, okay, you have this extremely rich, well-funded, huge apparatus which does all these social services in, in nomine ecclesia but does not live the gospel, but but whose employees are not 
you know, practicing the faith in 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 a consistent or ordinary way. What what would be your approach to the renewal of that? Because that does seem like a gigantic challenge, and I, I'm not sure how I would approach it. I I mean, I have an answer. I'm I'm trying to I, before I say it out loud. I'm I'm trying to really ask myself: Do I mean this, um, or am I just being provocative? And I think question. I do mean this. I I think I do mean this. Uh, I'd shut it all down. I would, if I were in such a circumstance, I would say the the institutional footprint and the cash flow have killed the evangelical zeal of my diocese, and therefore I renounce it. I renounce the Kirchensteuer, I renounce the money, all of these institutions that have effectively become non-Catholic, not necessarily anti-Catholic, but non-Catholic in their administration and staffing and work. The, the state can have them. Go nuts. Do your thing. Um, we are going to focus on, you know, a sort of ecclesiastical and ecclesiological back to basics here of we need to focus on evangelization. We need to focus on sacraments. We need to focus on catechesis. We need to focus on good old fashioned street evangelization. Yeah. And it, we have, we have clearly become, you know, institutionally incapable of doing that because we have become concerned with, all sorts of you know worldly concerns, and again, not those worldly concerns are bad. The you know the church in Germany is insanely rich, yeah. and it spends that money by you know running all sorts of um, social welfare organizations. And I'm not saying those organizations should cease to exist. I'm just saying make them independent. Get you know say this does not need to be the diocese problem. If you know we, we we need to find a different way to run it that does not involve this being the primary expression of the identity of this particular church, and that's time. And I think that was a great answer. Ed. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Great, um, JD. Before before um, we draw a line under this wonderful conversation that we've been having, uh, how have you been handling your your illness in terms of remedy? I'm you sick. know what's your I know you're so whinging. Is that is that how you've primarily been dealing with it? A, <laughs> no. Do you are you a whiny guy when you when you feel unwell? Do you have a go to remedy to feel better? I mean, I'm assuming you haven't been doing this sort of Windex ultraviolet light and ivermectin cocktail. I've been um, drinking a lot of tea with honey and lemon. Sometimes honey whiskey. And lemon. Well, that's good. I've been taking Advil and Tylenol. I had some leftover pain medicine from when I got my wisdom teeth out. Took that when I was <laughs> when my throat was really hurting. I know okay. that bothered you, that made you uncomfortable, but it was true. I feel like opioids you find in the back of a drawer are just maybe not a great lifestyle choice. I that that's just me. I'm conservative that way. That is I, just you. Um but you live in Colorado. Things are different out there. <laughs> I'm aware. Um I okay yeah. well I have for your edification and delight and maybe your inspiration as you continue to recover I, I have come across a list of sort of homey homey homeopathic I'm not saying homey not homeopathic that's just BS I don't you know that's nonsense you might as well just I don't even know what homeopathic means very honestly I have no idea what it's the sort it's like you know you chew a flower and it magics you better it's not it's nonsense it's yeah but it, I don't yeah. know I mean does it just mean any like, does it mean the wisdom of our ancestors, therefore? No, it means the wisdom of the druids. It's like echinacea and garbage like that. People who people who believe in homeopathy tend to also believe in like chakras and, you know, 
have their auras red and you know it's it's hippie stuff we're going to steer clear of that maybe i say maybe we're going to steer clear of it because i have this list of homey remedies non prescription medicine remedies oh, folk remedies let's say folk remedies that's a great folk remedies from around the world and and i would just like you to to listen to them and you can try and pronounce some of them if uh, if that makes you happy and you can then give me a, a yes or no. You're open to trying them. Okay. Okay. Gogol mogul. Gogol mogul. Gogol mogul. Gogol mogul, I imagine, is a Korean tea. You are wrong. Oh. Gogol mogul is a, is a hot drink uh, from Russia and Russia. Ukraine. Oh. And Ukraine. Oh. And um, it is basically eggnog. You whisk together an egg yolk, uh, honey, sugar, and obviously, I'm assuming booze. Um, they specifically recommend cognac, where I'm looking here, or rum. Uh, and this is this is believed to be a curative uh, form. You've got your you have your you know your protein, you have your sugar, you have your alcohol, all the things a healing body needs. It's basically eggnog. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I take that. Okay, Google Mogul say yes. I ye. I.e. is a Korean tea. No, you really, you really want Korean tea. I'm, I'm picking up on that, but no, I, I.e. Uh, is, is used in some households in China. You burn it. It's the dried leaves of a plant. Uh, it is said to have an antiseptic effect. You, you are basically smoking yourself. You are, you are using the curative properties of smoke. It's, you're, it's basically, think of it as an indoor Chinese barbecue like where cocktail. you are the meat being cured. Oh, okay. So it's like my uh, <coughs> my wife's always trying to get me to steam, you know, if I'm congested. I don't know if your wife is- Yeah, it's to, that, but with, so that with smoke. smoke. Okay. Well, um, it does, however, tobacco? say- Is there tobacco? No, it's not tobacco. It's oh. you, the, the picture I'm seeing here is a bowl, although it does say it's best to avoid inhaling any kind of smoke when you have a cold or flu. Uh, as smoke is a respiratory irritant, which I think is basically fake yeah. Western medicine. They've laid over this otherwise yeah. laudatory idea of, you know, this seems to me to be a really gussied up um, Chinese bespoke version of, you know, if you've got a chest problem, like have a cigar, try and loosen things up a little bit, you know, see if you can get, see if you can get the dam to break. So I, ye, yay or nay. Yeah. Well, again, it I, is antiseptic. I, I this isn't just any. Yes, let's say tobacco. I menthol, mentholated tobacco. I. You know what? I maintain the best cold remedy I know, apart from obviously whiskey, um, is they sell and they only sell them in Britain. I suppose they probably don't sell them there anymore because they're trying to ban tobacco altogether. Um, it, consulate menthol cigarettes were originally, I think, created and marketed as like a chest remedy, mm. but they really work. Mm, wow, that's neat. Stay in school and don't smoke, kids. Whatever, yeah, yeah. but you know, yeah. Wow, that's neat. Those things, those things did the business. Um, okay, dirty socks, JD. Dirty socks is a Korean tea. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say, no, it's not. Um, you're greasing your throat with lard or chicken fat, and then placing dirty socks around it. You're wrapping your own used laundry around no. your throat. No, what is this? Um, the logic behind this one is admittedly a little fuzzy. Yes. Where does this come but, from? Uh, the, 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 this seems to have started in Britain. This seems to be a, a country folk remedy in Britain, although I, it doesn't say this. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is probably a West Country thing. 
possibly Cornish. But anyway, the idea, the, again, people don't really have, um, there's no clear outline of the logic at work at here, but it's believed to help rid the body of germs, maybe because it sort of induces sweating, and I would imagine also vomiting, if you coat your neck in chicken lard and then wrap your own sweaty socks around it when you're feeling unwell. Um, so yeah, the dirty socks, yay or nay? Going to give that one a try? No. No. Okay. Uh, this next one I think you're going to like. Lizard soup. Lizard soup? Yeah, lizard soup. It, this is not a Korean tea. It is, in fact, a soup, and it is made of dried lizards. No. No? I don't want that. Where's what if going? I told you it often includes yams and comes from Hong Kong? No, I don't want that. No? No. Okay. I've had enough okay. of things which come from Asian wet markets <laughs> for the moment. Careful. No, this disease of COVID comes from an Asian wet market, does it not? Is that not the No, that... Theory? It's a, I thought that was the theory. The, no, that was a theory, but I think we've... <laughs> I think we've debunked that Where now. Where are we on now? It's, lab leak? We, yeah, I think lab leak is now widely accepted as, yeah, of course it is. It's that giant, you know, factory lab there that says, you know, danger virus research into COVID going on here. Yes. Which was conveniently located like a mile outside the town where the first cases came from. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think we're on that, not like someone had a bad bat sandwich or something. Okay. Well, I thought it was still bad sandwich. I'm not up to date. No, no, we've moved on. We've okay. moved on. Um, hot cocoa. No, hot cocoa is fine, but it's not good for sick. Really? Just, you've been, you have been all week banging on about herbal tea I've been and isn't hot cocoa and herbal tea basically the same thing no sugar i think there's a difference between the effect of sugar on the throat and honey on the throat honey coats the throat but but cane sugar irritates the throat can you imagine anything if you had a sore throat worse than a pixie stick no yeah but a pixie i can't really stick. imagine anything worse than a pixie stick anyway really um no, no, that's gross. Okay, well, a I pixie mean, stick on a sore throat would be particularly bad. I, I no, no, I grant you that. I'm surprised. I mean, I, I surely that's just the no, the, the think, delivery mechanism. I think though, cane because, sugar is an irritant on a sore throat, and honey is. You not. know, when I used to work in politics, the accepted wisdom was that if you had a big speech to make, you you drank a pint of very milky tea with six sugars in it because it would coat the throat, and so you wouldn't get the coughs or dry up. Oh. So. Um, well, I, I don't know that I think you're, you're, you're necessarily onto a winner. They're saying tea with honey, good for throat, cocoa, bad, because it's a different kind of sugar. But I mean, you do you, I'm healthy. You're sick. Make kings. of that what you want. <laughs> okay. Um, pickled plum, JD. No, I don't care for plums. Although, do you remember that famous episode of the Simpsons where Yoko Ono goes to, um, Moe's Tavern and... Uh, oh, it orders a single plum floating in a bowler hat or something? Floating in perfume served in a man's hat. And Moe just reaches into the barn and goes, here you go. That's just funny. That, that is funny. Um, Where do okay. dried plum dessert uh, come from? Or whatever? Uh, in Japan, people apparently rely on sour pickled plum or umiboshi to prevent and heal colds, flus, and other illnesses. Although this may change your mind here. Umeboshi isn't actually a plum at all, but a variety of apricot. Oh, interesting. So we're saying pickled plum, but actually it's pickled interesting. apricot. It's said to have uh, antibacterial effects. But that's probably the pickling agent. However, I would imagine. you would imagine. And um, yeah, studies on, studies on the fruit, I'm looking into this now, appear to be purely placebo-based. So this is, this is wishful thinking, but with apricots. There you go. 
There you go. Uh, turnips. No. Move on. No? You don't need to know anymore. Fair enough. Um, a tallow poultice. Now we're getting into the real. No. This is like Hildegard of Bingen would have gone no, in for a tallow for poultice. For God's sake, no. This is coating the outside of one's throat with beef fat? No. Yeah. I mean, this is a variation on a primogenitor, presumably for the dirtiest socks. Yeah, and tallow Just you go straight for the beef tallow. Yeah, no. Yeah. This is, no, a, I, no. I think you're missing no. a trick. No. Bullshot. Bullshot is what you actually want. You should make yourself a big thermos of that. Of bullshot? Bullshot. Are you unfamiliar with the term? Yes. Is that, is that what you're trying to? Yes. Okay. Bullshot is basically you make yourself um, a really, really reduced, thick, strong beef stock. Then you jack it with clear liquor of your choice. Vodka is usually the one. It's like an incredibly beefy Bloody Mary. Um, that, that'll that set you to rights. And if it doesn't, it will at least keep you ticking over. All right. Well, thank you, Ed, for those suggestions. I think I'm going to stick with what I got. Um, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Good Egg Fund. If you want to help other people, help other people. Ed, where do you go? Goodeggfund.org. It's where good people go. Goodeggfund.org. Doing good stuff with your money. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, a guy who has been filling in for me in a lot of ways over the past couple days to whom I'm very grateful. It is my pal, my pillar, podcast partner, co-founder, Ed Condon. We'll be back next week. 